I just really felt like this magnetic pull to live in China and see for myself all of these great changes the people there were going through and to try to translate that and tell those stories, those human stories to the rest of the world. I felt like that was, I don't know, it sounds cliche, but it kind of felt like it was sort of my calling even from a young age. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me, we have Joanna Chu, journalist for the Toronto Star and recent author of the book China Unbound. Uh, Joanna, before we get into a rather heavy subject between Canada and China relations and China in relation to the world, let's start on a lighter note. What's the best Chinese cuisine that one could take in in this well-known country? Oh, in China. Wow. That's a good question. Um, for a second, I thought you were saying, like, what's the best Chinese food in Vancouver, where I live? And that's already hard. But China, basically, if I could give advice, it's to go to the place that looks the worst. Um, a restaurant with no doors is just like an open like open to the street um, because the only time I've gotten food poisoning in China was at this like five-star banquet hall with kind of gold statues outside and I felt so sick after but anytime I've eaten at completely on you know places that you wouldn't be able to find on Google that's when you get the best food just noodles um, what I do miss from living in Beijing is called oil splash noodles from Western China is just these thick handmade pulled noodles with veggies and, you know, meat chopped up on top and they douse it all in this hot chili oil. And it's so good. It's like this nutty, spicy, oily mix. And yeah, I probably gained a significant amount of weight because of how good these noodles were and they were right next to my house. Well, in your book, Joanna, you chronicle your family's journey to Canada and then back to China before your parents uh, moved here once and for all. How did knowledge of your family's history uh, impact you even as a child? Yeah, well, I guess growing up, I didn't know my family history. I didn't know exactly why we ended up in Canada. I was born in Hong Kong. And, you know, later my parents told me, you were actually in a protest after the Tiananmen Square Massacre in 1989, where, you know, millions of Hong Kongers protested what happened to, you know, pro-reform peaceful protesters who were killed in Beijing. Um, and that event really drove a lot of people from Hong Kong and also other parts of China out of the country to places like Canada, the US, Australia, UK, because a lot of Hong Kongers were scared after British colonial rule was set to end in 1997 that um, they would see a worse replacement, which is back to Chinese rule. Um, unfortunately, right now, Hong Kong is under, uh, you know, the national security law. There's a lot of crackdowns and lots of restrictions on freedom of expression in Hong Kong. So I think my family and others who chose to, you know, pick up and leave, leave their roots behind. I think, unfortunately, a lot of these people felt like they made the right decision. But realizing this as I was growing up, learning about what was happening in China, um, not just, a, you know, the dark things like the one child policy, which meant that often girl babies were abandoned. Um, just also the story of kind of China's resiliency, the Chinese people's resiliency with all these kind of really tumultuous um, times they've been through, civil war, everything. Um, it just really drew me to the country. And 
my parents wanted me to just grow up in Canada and enjoy my freedoms, but I just really felt like this magnetic pull to live in China and see for myself all of these great changes um, the people there were going through and to try to translate that and tell those stories, um, those human stories um, to the rest of the world. I felt like that was, I don't know, it sounds cliche, but it kind of felt like it was sort of my calling even from a young age. Did you feel a little out of place at all in Canada, given that you did have descent from Hong Kong? Yeah, I think when people think of Canada as being so multicultural that it's easy for immigrants, but it really, it's not as <laughs> good as I think some Canadians would hope it to be. And that's, I guess, another reason why I think some of my reporting and writing on China, um, it has that insider-outsider perspective where... Sometimes when we see Western critiques or commentary in China, it's really kind of us versus them or they're so different from us. Um, but to me, even, you know, as a Canadian, sometimes people would always be like, where are you from? I would be like, oh, I'm from Vancouver. And they wouldn't accept that. So I would have to say, you know, Hong Kong, I'm Chinese. So I think having that kind of immigrant identity helped me in that I wasn't, I'm not really loyal to any country. I can kind of see the... Um, pros and cons and shortcomings of different places. And I don't really get defensive um, from like kind of a, you know, patriotic point of view. So, you know, any racism or discrimination I got growing up, I think the silver lining was it made me a more objective journalist. Um, I'm not really carrying the Canadian flag over <laughs> in China and always talking from the perspective of the West because I'm kind of in between which and so you should be as a journalist i would say mm -hmm. yeah that makes it easier to be a journalist to be a little bit more kind of there's no such thing as objectivity but kind of in that position where you're not really on certain sides because there there is that really intense pressure on um asians or uh, people who are not white <laughs> living in the west to take sides whenever they're kind of, you know, origin country has some sort of tensions with the West and people of Chinese descent have been kind of pressured to be like, oh, whose side are you on? Do you support the CCP in China? Um, are you pro-democracy? Like, what's up? And I think the average Canadian who maybe hails from Germany or Netherlands don't get those questions like that. Well, one of the things that my audience is a particular interest in understanding is the underground churches that uh, are blossoming up in, in China. Some say it's one of the fastest growing countries for Christianity in the world right now. And you got to see some of these firsthand and you talk about this in the book uh, as you're kind of seeing sort of the government surveillance and yet this space of secrecy. What, what was that like? Yeah, so in China, I was surprised you know, everyone told me, oh, China with time as it gets richer, it's just going to become more liberal, more like us in the West. But I found that as soon as I moved there in 2012, year after year, things got worse. There was more and more crackdowns, like teenage bloggers would get arrested, human rights lawyers, not even human rights lawyers, like just run of the mill lawyers. If they end up working on some sort of sensitive case, uh, hundreds of them were detained in one year. Um, so underground churches, it's, I thought it was a really good place to start the book because, you know, people can identify with, um, religion, that religion is kind of like a element of all societies around the world. And to people who are religious, it is so important to them. So in China, 
where even, you know, religious faith, belief and practice is so restricted and controlled and regulated. I thought that kind of gave a good picture of what Chinese life is like. Uh, Christianity, you can't just be like openly Christian and start a church wherever you please and expect it to um, kind of be acceptable because in China there's a system, there's state-sanctioned churches where you have to basically register and the pastors, sometimes even the sermons, have to be vetted by the government. That's why um, people in China who, who, who are Christians, they feel that, some of them feel that going to these state-sanctioned churches isn't actually really being a Christian because these churches teach that the Communist Party is still the main power in your life, that the CCP is above God, basically. So these underground churches have been flourishing for quite some time. And the one I went to for the beginning of the book, it was literally underground. You have to go inside an apartment compound. And then I saw a window and there was a red cross outside. And then you go downstairs and you see um, a few rooms, pretty big rooms uh, for the church. Um, but I asked people, you know, in Beijing why they felt that they could, you know, do this. And they say, once our congregation gets bigger, we split up into smaller groups with the hope that if we stay small, since there are so many of them, that we won't attract uh, crackdowns from authorities. So it was a very kind of pragmatic way to try to figure out the system and work the system. But, you know, sadly, the kind of red lines in China are always shifting. What you might get away with one month could change the next month. Um, so in Hong Kong, where I just mentioned the crackdowns uh, because of the national security law after mass protests in Hong Kong really angered central authorities. A group of speech therapists have been sentenced to 19 months in prison each because they wrote children's storybooks that depicted a village of sheep trying to defend their homes from a pack of wolves. And the whole kind of sheep and wolf thing is a pretty common trope, and I think, in, you know, fairy tales and things like that. But um, uh, a judge in Hong Kong found it to be seditious, kind of anti-government, anti-Beijing. The wolves represented China, and the sheep were Hong Kongers, so they were sentenced uh, to prison for <laughs> 19 months. Um, so that's something that you, I would never have guessed would happen. So these red lines are always shifting. But um, I, my book, and I wanted to emphasize that there are still human stories and resiliency in China that we do need to know about because the risk of all of this fear and worries about the rise of China on the world stage is that people forget about the actual humans living, trying to live their lives in the country. And often they're kind of conflated with the party. People who look Asian around the world are getting punched in the face, like elderly Asian men are being pushed to the ground. Um, COVID only exacerbated those tensions, people blaming Chinese people for COVID um, and not, you know, Chinese government handling of it. So um, I really wanted to, you know, focus my book on telling and explaining, um, you know, Ch China's broader aims and activities and ambitions in international relations, but also centering it on what people are doing about it, how people are reacting to it, and how the West can um, better support civil society in China. Joanna, we are uh, on the end of the grievance of the Queen 
in the UK, and you've alluded to this already, that when British stopped having rule over Beijing and then there is the threat of China, uh, could you give us even more of a backstory to that for sort of how Beijing got to the place that they were and their relationship with Britain? Because I think a lot of us just wouldn't have that knowledge front and center. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, And while I don't want to excuse any of China's actions, I think I try to put into context um, this kind of wolf warrior diplomacy we see from Chinese diplomats today where, you know, someone says something that might be mildly critical of China and they come back with just, we will rain fire upon you, like really just kind of... um, extreme almost kind of statements. Um, For example, a Chinese ambassador uh, telling French television that uh, after Taiwan is reunified with China, there will be re-education camps, uh, fully knowing that this will not go over well (laughs) in French audiences. But I think it's almost trying to have this posture of strength to Western powers. And I argue that it does come from this historical baggage and trauma um, and anger from what's called the century of humiliation in China, where Western powers, mainly the UK um, and others, including Japan, which sometimes is kind of lumped in with the West in the past, um, forcibly opened up China's borders to trade for a long time the the emperor in china felt like oh we have abundance of riches in china and it was true when you compare the level of wealth and quality of life in china compared to european way of life in the past especially during the middle ages china was way ahead it didn't feel like it needed to open up trade and give its coveted silks and ceramics to Europe, which had such like, um, just kind of, I forget the word, but Sino fever, like they wanted um, silks and teas and ceramics. And they basically went to war over it. They attacked China's uh, shores, you know, battered it with warships. And um, before that, they tried to get the population of China hooked on opium, which it grew in India, which was another colony at the time to try to force this trade with China. And they succeeded. They opened up trade. They kind of established these foreign concessions. We think of Shanghai and how Shanghai has these Western-looking buildings on the coastline. That's because um, Western powers created their own land, their own jurisdiction in China to facilitate this forced trade in goods with China. So this only wrapped up um, you know, before World War II, around that time. So a lot of Chinese, a lot of Chinese leaders kind of have this rhetoric of finally China is strong. We won't get bullied again by the West. So it kind of comes from this backdrop. And as part of these, you know, two opium wars, Britain won an over 100-year lease on Hong Kong and surrounding territories. So when I was born in Hong Kong, I was um, kind of a Hong Kong British citizen. I was a subject of the British colonial empire. For a long time, there were places in Hong Kong, like on the hills, where people of Chinese descent were not allowed to go. There were lots of these elite clubs um, that are still in place in Hong Kong, where it used to be like no Chinese. It's British only. Um, And 
Hong Kong still to this day has that kind of flavor of a former colony. Um, often the expats, um, some of the you know rich judges and um, senior um, people um, came from this colonial administration that only um, stopped in 1997, which was the negotiated return handover to Chinese rule. And it, it's very complicated because people in Hong Kong, not everyone, but especially now, there's kind of this nostalgia for British rule because, you know, as brutal the wars were that led to Britain taking over Hong Kong, once they had Hong Kong, they did try to run it um, as a city with some rule of law with um, a lot more press freedom than there is now. Um, kind of this laissez-faire economy where you sink or swim. Low taxes, but also very low social services. Um, and and protests were allowed. So every year, so many protests. You just um, register with the local police, like, oh, this is where my march is going, and they were allowed to take place. Um, so with the queen dying, it kind of touched off again this wave of nostalgia in Hong Kong for what it was like before the return to Chinese rule. Do you think that Hong Kong has any hopes of breaking from China completely? Like, I mean, that's the the desire. No. No, and actually, I think that's also perhaps kind of Chinese propaganda made it seem like Hong Kong, you know, where they wanted to be independent. They wanted to break away from China. But the status quo is people accepted that they were Chinese and part of China, but they wanted to um, push for kind of what was legally negotiated between the British and the Chinese over Hanover, which was that Hong Kong would retain its uh, way of life at least until the year 2047, that 50 years where they had this like almost this grace period where they were still um, kind of semi self-governing. So a lot of the protests, they were like, Actually, universal suffrage, uh, universal voting rights was part of this, these negotiations that we are owed, that we, that, you know, the UK should make sure happens. Um, I think a minority of people in Hong Kong actually wanted or even entertained the idea that they could be independent. Um, Most wanted to have those, you know, promised rights and freedoms, but within China as a city in, in the PRC. China. Could you get, give us any insight into just how uh, advanced China is at keeping tabs on people that have ties to them? Yeah. So I explain that this is kind of the united front or and also cooperating with Chinese state security. And there's so many bureaucracies and very, very well-resourced thousands of staff um, organizations in China that's dedicated to trying to keep tabs on and try to make sure that even people who leave China have been outside of China for generations, the idea that they're still Chinese and should be loyal to China and that any kind of ounce of criticism from the Chinese diaspora is dangerous to Chinese stability. So they have so many resources on tracking them. So this student, he was in Quebec um, when he actually, he opened the account in China, but he didn't tweet. Um, He tweeted 
with uh, when he was in Quebec. Um, again, using a VPN and fake name, he set his gender to female, um, but he it wasn't even him who got the call from China's police first. As a common intimidation tactic, they contacted his parents first. He contacted his father saying, your son's up to no good in Canada, make him stop. Um, he's in trouble. Um, and then his dad tried to be like, what are you, what are you doing? Um, stop what you're doing. I'm worried about you. Um, so, But this student, he was studying law. He wants to be a lawyer in Canada. So he knew his rights, that he, there was nothing illegal about what he did doing it in Canada. So he went to Canadian police to try to report these threats and this kind of intimidation of his family in China over his exercising his very basic free speech in Canada, which he didn't even post anything of his own words. He only retweeted a couple of videos, one kind of a satire of President Xi Jinping, another a um, eulogy for um, the new Nobel Peace Prize winner, Liu Xiaobo, who died in Chinese custody. He didn't make his own <laughs> statements and he only had two followers. He was one of those Twitter eggs. You're not even sure if it's a bot or not, right? We are running out of time. One word to describe the people that are in China that you said they're resilient and I would describe them as as people of faith, if it's not in in their God, as as we talked about Christians in the church, uh, what's another way that you would use to describe this resiliency? Um, I think the theme is that a lot of people who are resilient, even the ones who had stayed in China, thinking that they could make a difference or things would get better, a lot of them have, in a way, given up with the zero COVID regulations, especially affecting cities like Shanghai, where people starved or just were so scared about the lockdowns. Um, now, even the very resilient people, they're trying to make plans to leave. Um, and I think that also opens up opportunities for us in the West to talk about how we are going to welcome um, people who are going to be leaving China and hoping to find better lives outside. That's one thing that's definitely in our power to do. Well, certainly an enlightening note to end on. That was Joanna Chu of the Toronto Star. She's also just written a book called China Unbound. You can find out more information on this and on all the events we talked about when you head to the show notes at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Definitely a lot of food for thought in this conversation. A couple things I think we should drill down on as we go from here. Joanna shared about the people who are in China and there's this growing longing to leave the country because of the oppression that they're facing. And I can't help but think of the spiritual oppression, right? There's there's a parallel there that, yes, you may be oppressed in a country and China's not exclusive to that in the world today, but we are oppressed spiritually as we face the reality of living in a sinful world. But thankfully, it's not just an exit out of a country for us when it comes to being liberated. It's the fact that God came to this world in Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind. As you think about oppression in the world, think about that the greatest oppression has been in your heart up until receiving Jesus Christ. Do check out the Culture at a Crossroads archive at davidmanmedia.com or anywhere where you can listen to podcasts. And we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.